Pastor Tony Evans said, God's path will never lack God's provision. In other words, God will never call you to something that he doesn't also provide for. The Apostle Paul said it this way, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 Fact is, God has made a promise to provide for your every need. What he's not promised, however, is how he's going to supply that provision. The truth is, God has made a lot of promises in Scripture about what he will do for us but not so much how he will do it. And of course, that's the part we have the hardest time with because we not only want God's provision, but typically we also want it our way. We not only want him to give us what we want, but also how we want it and when we want it as well. Problem is that's not part of the promise, right? He didn't say God will supply every need of yours according to your schedule, according to your preferences or according to your plan. No, he said, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, it is entirely up to God to give us what we need, when and how he decides we need it. You want to talk about messing up your plans. God is an expert at messing up your plans. He is, because what God wants you to learn is how to follow his plan. Listen, not just because of what he wants to provide for you, but also because of how he wants to provide it. In other words, a significant portion of what you actually need to receive from God in order to carry out his plan for your life comes not only in what he provides, but also in the manner in which he provides it. As we're going to see in our story today, as we continue to work our way through 1 Samuel, where David and his men who have been trying to eke out an existence in the wilderness on the run from King Saul and his army, they find themselves in a precarious position as they've run out of supplies to live on. Their spoils from the battle at Keilah are gone. They've likely overhunted the area of the wilderness they're hiding out in as there are only so many places in the wild that can accommodate 600 fugitives trying to conceal themselves. And so they're in a tight spot until God sends along what appears to be just the right answer at just the right time, as we'll see. And yet the provision that David and his men need, which is almost in their grasp, well, it doesn't end up coming how they thought it would, or when they thought it would. And because of that, David begins to matter into his own hands and nearly makes a catastrophic mistake that would have been tragic to those around him and to his own future. But God, after messing up David's plan, God intervenes in the most unlikely way, as he's so fond of doing. And in the process, David and his men are provided for. And yet, the greatest blessing of all ends up coming not from the provision itself, but through the manner in which God supplies the provision, a blessing that David would have actually destroyed had he carried out his plan rather than allowing God to provide in his own way. And therein lies the lesson for us all. When there is a significant need in your life, one way or the other, look, God will provide 
what you need, when and how he sees fit. That's his promise. And yet it's more than that, because if you'll trust him enough to provide for you, even when it's not how you would provide for yourself, you will find that the greater blessing comes from the process of God providing for you, even more than from the provision itself. If you think about the promised land for God's people, right? Certainly, when they finally possessed the promised land, it was a blessing. But everything they learned about the character and nature and will of God for their lives, about His plan for their lives, everything they learned about all of that didn't come with the land itself. No, all of that came through the 40-year process between Egypt and Canaan. It was the process of obtaining the promised land that shaped the people of God, not the land itself. And it's that way with every great story in the Bible. And by the way, in the lives of God's people ever since, right? When you tell a great story about something God blessed you with, what makes the story great isn't just the blessing you ended up with. It's the process he led you through to obtain that blessing that makes the story worth telling. Because when God provides, it's never just about the provision itself because the process in which he provides it is actually what transforms us. So let's pick the story up where we left it last time at 1 Samuel 25, beginning with the first 13 verses and see why it's so important that we learn to trust in God's process, not just in his provision. 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 13. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So the first verse of the chapter begins with, Now Samuel died. And it ends with, Then David rose. This is the end of an era, one era. It's the beginning of another, not only for Samuel and David, but for all of Israel. Yet David still has a lot to learn, as we'll see as God continues to provide for him and his men in a very difficult time in David's life. And so David and his men go down to the wilderness of Paran, or, or Maon. 
It's on the southern border of the tribal territories that were allotted to Judah, which was the most isolated area in all of the land and was therefore one of David's favorite places to hide from Saul, as we saw back in chapter 23. Yet even though it was an extremely remote and rugged desert region, it was also at the time, and actually it still is today, it's sheep-rearing country. And even though the local sheep herders were all over the same area when David was there, and even though David and his men could have very easily helped themselves to as many sheep as they wanted while in the desert, while they were hungry, instead David chooses to help and protect the shepherds and their sheep. In fact, in the next part of the story, as we'll see, one of the sheep herders says that David and his men were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. In other words, David and his men, hungry men, voluntarily protected the shepherds and their sheep day and night from wild animals and thieves instead of taking the sheep for themselves. And so they basically acted as a private security force for these sheep herders. So as far as David was concerned, it was completely reasonable to ask the owner of all those sheep for concessions when the shearing season arrived because not only had David protected and cared for the man's shepherds and their flocks, but the shearing season was, in ancient Near Eastern tradition, a time of great celebration and great feasting and great generosity. It was a time of excess, and everyone knew that and anticipated it twice a year. So David sends 10 men, representatives of his, to this very wealthy man at the beginning of the shearing season to respectfully ask for help by way of provisions for him and his men. So they very politely remind the man, first of all, that if it wasn't for David, he wouldn't be shearing as many sheep right now because David has been protecting them and providing for them for several months now. And so it only makes sense for the man to return the favor, especially during a time of feasting, not only according to, uh, to good manners and common sense, but also according to centuries-old Near Eastern hospitality and also according to Israelite law, which made provisions for the poor, the outcast, and all those for whom nothing is prepared, as we see in Nehemiah 8.10 and Esther 9.19, just as a couple of examples. And so the problem wasn't that David's plan was flawed or that his approach was inappropriate or that he did anything wrong at all. In fact, David did everything right. He honored the man before he even met him by protecting the man's property and livelihood. And then at the appropriate time, he asks very respectfully for help according to their own laws and traditions. Okay, the problem wasn't that David did anything wrong because the truth is David did everything right. The problem was the fact that God had already chosen to supply the provision that David needed in another way, which of course David knew nothing about at this point. So this rich man, who turns out to be a horrible person, by the way, in fact, uh, in ancient Hebrew culture, dogs were considered the lowest, most despised, reviled life forms there was. And yet in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, also uh, in the Syriac and the Arabic translations as well, this man, Nabal, is likened to a dog. He's compared to a dog. And just to further uh, emphasize his wretched character, the name Nabal in the ancient Hebrew literally means fool. Right? If anyone has ever lived up to their name, it was this guy. Because not only does he reject David's request, but he does it in the most insulting, offensive way he possibly can. Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. 
Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and I've killed for my shears and give it to men from whom I don't know where they come from? Now look, first of all, Nabal knows exactly who David was, which we know from the fact that David, first of all, was famous throughout all Israel, according to chapter 18, and also by the fact that Nabal refers to him as the son of Jesse who broke away from his master. Everyone knew who David was. Everyone knew he was the son of Jesse. He was famous throughout the land, and everyone knew that he was running from Saul. Right? Saul's been moving armies around, chasing him. This isn't like a national secret at this point. So the whole, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse routine that Nabal is putting on here is meant to be an insult. And that's exactly how David takes it. And of course, the other bit of information that everyone knew about David was the fact that he was the most fearsome fighter in all of Israel. Only a fool would pick a fight with David. And Nabal does not disappoint. As David's men relay the message from Nabal, and in response, all that David has to say is, every man strap on his sword. And in an instant, with 200 men staying behind to guard their belongings, David leads the other 400 toward Carmel to wipe Nabal and all his clan off the face of the earth and take the supplies he needs for himself and for his men. And yet, as we'll see in the next part of the story, David's plan wasn't God's plan. Because although God fully intended to provide for David's every need and then some, it wouldn't come in the way that David thought it would or wanted it to, which was the whole point. God was teaching David to trust him, not through the provision itself, but through the process of obtaining that provision. And so through the foolishness of Nabal, David was learning that God doesn't always provide how you want him to, even when you do everything right. Okay, there's, there's a broad belief among Christians that if I do what's right, what's righteous, then God will take care of me. And he will. He will. He promised that he would. But not necessarily the way that you want him to, even when you do everything right. The Apostle Paul wasn't perfect, but he obeyed God's direction for his life daily, right? Paul continually did what was right and what was God's will. And as a result, Paul received his provision from God. Everything that Paul needed. Often while he was shackled to a wall in prison. But that was part of God's process of providing for Paul and for you and for me, by the way, because without those long periods in Paul's life in prison, we wouldn't have a third of Paul's writing in the Bible. The Apostle John was faithful and God provided for John everything that he needed while he was exiled in a brutally harsh environment on a remote island where he wrote the book of Revelation. See, God provided for those early disciples, but at times the process of God providing included persecution and suffering and rejection. Now, what if they'd only recognized God on the good days? What if those early disciples had only recognized God on the good days when they were comfortable and everything was going their way? Right? What kind of God would that be if he's only present and working in our lives when things are going the way we want them to? Listen, if that's the case, 
then that is a very different God than the one Jesus models for us in the Gospels. And yet that is exactly how we far too often represent God to this world and to each other. That it's God working in our lives when everything is good and the enemy working in our lives when everything is not. I hear some version of that from Christians on a regular basis, and yet that is a very dangerous theology and one that cannot be reconciled with Scripture. Because if you only see God in the end result of your prayers when you get what you want, then your perception of God will always be that of a distant, impersonal being who's somewhere up in heaven deciding whether or not to grant your requests. Rather than a loving Father who is intimately involved in every single aspect of your life, even the hardest parts when you don't get what you want. That's where we miss what God is doing in our lives, because while we're fixated on the thing that we're praying for, God is often providing something far greater through the process of getting there. But if you never learn to look for God in the process, eventually you develop a grossly distorted view of God, a colossal misunderstanding about who He is. And that's when you start treating prayers that God has already answered in your life as if they're still unanswered prayers. Because you didn't get what you wanted. Even though all the while He was doing something infinitely better in your life through the process, but you missed it. This is exactly what was happening with David, right? Just because Nabal said no to David's request and just because he did it in a terrible way didn't mean God wasn't providing for David's need. In fact, God was providing. He just wasn't doing it in the way that David wanted him to. And notice David's response. He doesn't pray. He doesn't ask God what to do next. He doesn't look for God in the failure of David's own plan. In fact, he doesn't take a single moment to consider what God might be doing for him in the process of being rejected by Nabal or in his own plan falling apart. No, David just immediately defaults to, hey, strap on your swords, boys. It's time to rock and roll. In other words, when I don't get what I want, how I want, I'll just make it happen for myself. It's what we do all the time when we focus on God in the provision without first looking for God in the process. What David doesn't realize is how easy it would be for him to turn into a leader just like Saul. Because that's exactly what Saul would do. In fact, it's exactly what Saul was doing. Anytime he didn't get what he wanted, how he wanted it, he just killed everyone standing in his way and he took what he wanted. David is about to make the very same mistake until a very wise and very beautiful woman, the most unlikely character in the whole story, yet she's smarter than everybody else in the story, the wife of Nabal, the fool. She recognizes what God is doing in David's life. She sees God in the process, and she rushes out to meet David before he makes a mistake that he can't take back. And in the process, David ends up being far more blessed than he ever would have been had he carried out his plan, as we'll see in a moment. So look, when you're asking God for something in your life, you have to learn to recognize him in the process, not just in the provision that you're asking for, because the truth is, very often, 
The process itself is the answer to your prayer. Author Corey Ten Boom once said, we never know how God will answer our prayers, but we can expect that he will get us involved in his plan for the answer. Let's keep reading verses 14 through 31. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out in the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he's such a worthless man that no one cannot uh, that that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves, and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seeds of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, "Go on before me." Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live." If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from a hollow of a sling. That is not a thinly veiled reference to David's experience with Goliath. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord, working salvation in himself. When the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So David and his men are on the move, and Nabal's shepherds know it. So they send a messenger to Abigail, Nabal's wife, to warn her of what's coming in the hopes that she can do something to stop it, because David isn't just coming after Nabal, as the messenger makes clear. For harm is determined against our master, and against all his house. In other words, David's coming to kill all of us. And so after hearing all that David did for Nabal's men, and yet the evil repaid to David by Nabal, 
Abigail immediately puts together a massive offering of their finest food, has it all loaded onto donkeys, and sends it out with her servants to head David off before he gets to Carmel. And then Abigail gets on her own donkey and heads out to meet them, where she puts on a master class in high-stakes negotiation. Because Abigail, uh, as her servants and, her, uh, and, and their extravagant provisions intersect with David and his men at the same time. This is what David is saying to himself as he sees them coming. Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belonged to him. I imagine he was squeezing his sword while he was saying it. In other words, as David sees Nabal's servants and animals and wife approaching him, he reaches a boiling point, And in that moment, he is a breath away from wiping them all out. So Abigail hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And there at David's feet, Abigail launches into not only what is the longest speech by a woman in the entire Old Testament, but also one of the most remarkable female-initiated encounters between a man and woman in all of biblical scripture. Keep in mind, for a married woman to arrange a clandestine meeting with one of her husband's enemies was not only extremely rare in the ancient Near East, it was downright scandalous. And yet she's not just there to plead for mercy for herself. Even with her own life hanging in the balance in an incredibly tense standoff in a remote mountain ravine, Abigail reasons with David for his own sake, not just hers. It is extraordinary. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. You see, if David had carried out his revenge on Nabal in his house, countless of innocent people would have died. And David would have been guilty. He would have, he would have had blood guilt before God, according to Exodus 23.7, because according to the Torah law in Leviticus 19.18, also Deuteronomy 32.35, it was for the Lord alone to avenge these kinds of offenses. And so in no way is Abigail making excuses for her husband's behavior. Quite the opposite. She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. And folly is with him. In other words, David, my husband's name means fool. And that's exactly what he is. So Abigail makes no excuses for her husband's evil nature, but rather she appeals to David's good nature. And by the way, she refers to David 14 times as my Lord. It's Adon in the ancient Hebrew, which can also be translated literally as my husband. Whether that was prophetic or just wishful thinking on Abigail's part, we don't know. But it does come true, as we'll see. But first... David has a decision to make, a life or death decision. To do what is right by honoring God, the Torah law, and Abigail, or to sin 
by avenging himself. And as we'll see, David chooses to do what is right by calling off the attack on Nabal and his house, even though just moments before, David could see no other way forward. And so it was through the wisdom of Abigail, David was learning that God's way of providing will never require you to sin, even when you can't see any other way. Okay, the fact is, if you have to sin to get what you want, then it's not God's provision for your life that you're seeking. We talked about this several months ago near the beginning of this sermon series, but it bears repeating the fact that one of the most definitive passages of Scripture on this subject is also one of the most misinterpreted, misapplied passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. It's Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13, where the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Of course, people interpret this uh, verse all the time to mean God will never give you more in this life than you can handle. I hear that all the time. You understand that's not even close to what Paul is saying here. The fact is we are most certainly given far more than we can handle at times in our lives. We are. Just ask a parent who's lost a child or anyone who's lost a spouse or endured some other great tragedy or faced some insurmountable need in their life, we are absolutely at times in our lives given far more than we can handle. You understand, that's why we need Jesus. Because there's nothing in this life that He can't handle. So we look to Him, not to ourselves, at those times in our lives when we're facing much more than we're able to handle on our own, when our need is so overwhelming that it's beyond what we can provide for ourselves. And so Paul says, look, because God is able to provide everything you need, you will never be put in a situation or in a circumstance in your entire life where the only solution for that need is for you to sin. Because he always provides a way of escape. He always provides what we need without us having to sin. That's why he starts the passage out with, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Because we're all tempted to sin. But no matter how strong the temptation to sin is, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, Paul says. Your ability to what? To not sin. And so with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay? Look, sin is always a choice. Sin is always a choice. And when you choose to sin because you've convinced yourself there's no other way to get what you need, you're actually denying yourself what you need the most. The process the process of allowing God to do what only He can do in your life, which is what teaches you how to rely on God for every need in your life. Because when we sin, look what we're saying is, Jesus, you're not enough. You're not enough to take care of my needs. You're not enough to satisfy my desires. You're not enough to provide what my heart longs for, so I'll just take what I need for myself. By the way, when you do that, often what you end up with 
is exactly what you want. Which is why so many people live that way. Because it works. It works as far as what you want for yourself. The tragedy is when you live like that, you're missing out on what God wants for you, which is exactly what we're going to see in David's life in the last part of this story. If he had taken what he wanted for himself, he would have missed out on what God wanted for him. <laughs> Listen, what God wants for you will carry you so much further in life than anything you could ever provide for yourself. And yet that provision, God's provision, only comes by way of God's process. The process of learning to trust Him to provide for your every need. Billy Graham said, We can be certain that God will give us the strength and resources we need to live through any situation in life that He ordains. The will of God will never take us where the grace of God cannot sustain us. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 32 to the end of the chapter. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So David wisely heeds the words of Abigail. He accepts her gracious gifts, and he sends her home with assurances of peace, at least on his part. And of course, when Abigail gets home, the celebration feast is in full swing to the point that Nabal is too drunk for Abigail to even have a meaningful conversation with him. So she waits until the next day after Nabal is sobered up. And then she tells him everything that happened. And perhaps for the first time in Nabal's miserable life, he grasps the weight of his actions and the fact that because of his foolish treatment of the next king of Israel, Nabal was just hours away from losing everything, including his own life, had it not been for the wise and courageous intervention of his wife. And as the reality of his behavior and what it nearly cost him sinks in, it's more than Nabal can bear. And in less than two weeks' time, 
He's dead. Because David chose to heed Abigail's pleading for David to trust in God's process to provide what he needed, David not only receives immediate provisions for himself and for his men, but he also receives an amazing wife and an incredibly wealthy estate. Because at this point in history, to marry the wife or concubine of a deceased ruler or landowner was to make a bid for his status and power by taking possession of his estate which David did through Abigail after Saul's death. This was a major milestone in David's life in preparation of becoming the future king, both materially and spiritually, because David was learning through discernment that God's way of providing is always the best way, even if it's not your way. Just look at the stark contrast between David's plan and God's plan. David choosing to submit to God's process through the wise counsel of Abigail was the difference between David destroying everything Nabal had and David inheriting everything Nabal had, including Abigail. And that was God's plan for David's life all along. But if David had abandoned God's process in favor of the immediate gratification he was after, listen, he would have missed out on some of the greatest provision of his life. It's no different for us. And there are no shortcuts. You understand, when God's process takes a long time to unfold in your life, that's not for God's benefit, right? He doesn't need time and experience to learn and to grow and to become what he's meant to become. No, you do. God's process is for your benefit because it's God's process in your life that reveals God's plan for your life. And there's simply no shortcuts for that. The truth is, the truth is God will gladly mess up your plans for your life in order to keep you from missing out on his plans for your life, because his way is always the best way. So when God provides, don't despise the process through which that provision comes, even when it's hard, even when you have to rely on him to see you through it, and even when it's not the way you would choose to do it on your own. Embrace the process that God leads you through. And I promise you, you will ultimately find greater blessing in the process itself than in the provision it produces in your life. You will. And I know that it's true because that's what he's been doing in the lives of his people throughout human history. And that's what he wants to do in your life as well. Let's pray.